Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at ClearMe.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week we range from an extended conversation with the President of Tanzania to the former head of the Department of Homeland Security, to Gary Leck, the creator of ViewFromTheWing.com, on some of the more absurd airline stories of the week. For starters, she's the first woman of color and a Muslim to lead a country, Tanzania. Samia Suluhu Hassan is the President of Tanzania and its 58 million people and she has a remarkable story to tell. I was recently in Tanzania to shoot my PBS special series, The Royal Tour with the President, and she sat down with me with an update from her African country. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Madam President, Let's start with uh, just some facts and figures. 54 countries in Africa. Most Americans can't name more than two of them if they're lucky. Uh, You know this from your own experience. Yes. Um, And it's always been a continent. You know, I remember when I was growing up, it was called, oh, the dark and forbidding continent. Nobody, it was, oh, you couldn't go. What was this all about? You've evolved into an economic 
powerhouse. Mm -hmm. You've evolved into a world trade leader. Mm -hmm. You've evolved into a gateway to the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the same time, we had the pandemic. At the same time, we had a change of power. At the same time, we have 53 other countries going through the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So my question is, for people listening who may not have ever been here or who may need to go out and buy an atlas when I finish this show, mm-hmm. what do you want to tell them about Tanzania that they don't know? Uh, it's a beautiful country with a lot of potential, um, rich in uh, natural resources, uh, with friendly people, and it's a country which can be easily reached by air if you use different airlines like the Emirates, Turkish, uh, Addis, Ethiopian, or uh, we have our own uh, airline too, the Air Tanzania. So it can be easily reached. And um, it's a country that is opening economically and uh, with uh, very attractive terms and conditions for investment. Uh, We have reduced our bureaucracy uh, reviewing our, our tax administration. So it's a country that uh, anybody, business people, anybody can come and visit. Business people can come and do the business with us. And uh, yeah, it's a country of uh, um, forthcoming um, policies. Now, of course, you're born and raised here in Zanzibar. Yes. I love that name, by the way. Yes, Zanzibar. It's so romantic. It's exotic. It's so romantic. Yes. But tell us about Zanzibar. It's an archipelago of about uh, more than 30 islets. And uh, Zanzibar by itself is autonomous. It's having its own government, though we do have... Uh, the United Republic with Tanganyika and Zanzibar, and we formed United Republic of Tanzania. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I remember when I was growing up, it was called German East Africa. Yes, yes. That was when the Germans were here. Yes. The Portuguese were here. Yes. The uh, Omanis were here. Omanis were, yes. Zanzibar and and here at the coast. And then the British. Yes. So everybody wanted Tanzania. Yes. Why? I think it's because of the of the reach of the natural resources, uh, because in Tanzania you can have uh, minerals, you can have uh, sea resources, you can have agriculture, uh, um, agriculture. Uh, uh, agriculture. Uh, in Tanzania, as I said before, it has a lot to offer to the world, apart from those tourism attractions nowadays, and a we'll lot get, of them. And we'll get to that. But I go back in history, your independence and freedom is relatively recent. 1961? Yeah, that's... In the mainland in 1964 in Zanzibar. That's that's making you a young, independent country. Yeah, about 60 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. How was it back then? Because your father, your parents, their parents before them were always under somebody else's rule. Yes. Yeah, you are right. And uh, for instance, myself... I was born when Zanzibar was under uh, Sultanate of Oman, and so I was born as a a citizen of the Sultanate of Oman, but then uh, um, in 1960. But then a few years after, I was a citizen of Zanzibar, and then a few months after, 
a Tanzanian citizen. So I've gone all through three different citizenships here. And of course, when, and when everybody was here before your freedom, yes, there was a little bit of a sad legacy. In fact, a lot of a sad legacy in terms of the slave trade. Yes, yes, yes. This was a gateway. Yes, yes. You know, uh, slaves were taken from West Africa through DRC across Lake Tanganyika. Through the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yes, Democratic Republic of Congo through Lake Tanganyika down to Tanzania. And they had been walking long distance to the auctioning point. Uh, like uh, they were uh, moving from uh, Kigoma, where, where they reached just crossing the Lake Tanganyika, then moving down to Bagamoyo. That's 100, 700 miles uh, uh, far. So, uh, and, and what does Bagamoyo stand for? Bagamoyo stands for In Swahili. a Swahili word. Buaga Moyo, but these uh, white people couldn't pronounce Buaga Moyo, so they say Baga Moyo. <laughs> guys, like, guys like me. <laughs> yeah, Buaga Moyo means crush down your heart. You're here for anything, so just crush down your heart. But it has a sad history. It has a sad history. It has a sad history because Bagamoyo was uh, a place where slaves were auctioned. And not, not only slaves, the ivories as well. These people were hunting the elephants, take the tusks, and they used the slaves to transport tusks from where they get it down to the auction point in Bagamoyo. Yeah, so Bagamoyo, it's a sad and good history. Mm. And it took a long time to eradicate that. Yes, of course, because from the, 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 the years which uh, slave trade was on up to, I think it was late 18, late 18th, maybe 19th century, that's when the slave trades end. And in Tanzania, we can count... Uh, the slave trade ending 1905. Yeah, that's when it ends, yeah. But the memory doesn't end. The memories are still there. The memories are still there. The slaves, wherever they came from, they still have their descendants in here. Mm -hmm. And most of those people probably don't even know. No, they don't. They don't. Because our politics... Uh, it's in such a way that we don't want them to associate themselves from that said history. So they are all Tanzanians, and we work and live as Tanzanians. You know, earlier this week, you took me to a very special place. I wasn't prepared for what I was about to see. You took me into the vaults with all the confiscated ivory tusks of all the elephants that were killed, yes. that you were able to catch the poachers yes. and confiscate those tusks. Yes. But how many tusks are we talking about in that vault? Uh, in that um, store, we have, I think, more than 49,000 tusks in there. Some of them full and some of them in pieces. But, uh, you know, Tanzania is a gate, gateway to East and Central Africa and elsewhere. Uh, some of them might be coming from the nearby country, neighboring country. But they're coming through Tanzania. Through Tanzania. 
Some of them, we caught them at the uh, harbor, and some, the, some of them in bags through the airports. But again, we have those uh, elephants who died on their natural cause. We all collect them and put them in store. And there are those who have been uh, killed on control, those who are harming the people. So they were controlled and killed. We also um, store the tusks. What are you going to do with all those? Uh, Peter, we can't sell them. We can't ban them. But I think we're going to leave them like that just to show to the world that this business is brutal, is cruel. And if, as you have seen them, a lot of elephants have been killed. And that's genocide to elephants. So we want to show to the world and ask them to stop this cruelly, cruel business. And can you stop it? Uh, yeah, we are trying. We are trying as East Africa, stopping them, as uh, stopping the, 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 the uh, business. Can I call you Mama Samia? Yes, yes. You grew up going to a mosque. Mm -hmm. Your father took you there when you were four. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you, and how did that shape how you're running the country now? The religious teachings, that's the basic principles that shapes anybody. So I was involved with the religious teachings in madrasa in, and in mosque since when I was four. That's when I started. And in my religion, Islamic religion, we are taught to be peaceful, to be hygienic, to be very observant, to respect everybody, and uh, above all, to respect the authorities, whether the local authorities or the national authorities. Yeah. And of course, when I mention the word Islam to mm -hmm. many Americans, mm -hmm. it has another connotation. Yes. Equated with terrorism. Mm-hmm. You lived out your entire life when somebody says, oh, you're going there, you're going to Tanzania, oh, mm. be safe, be mm. careful, mm. right? Mm. How do you fight that? Yeah, Tanzania is half-half. We have Christians here, almost 60%, 50%. Then we have Muslims here at the same percentage. So terrorism can be done by anybody. Anybody who is involved in that type of acts can do it. So for us, Islam means peace. And so Islamic is a religion of peace, not a religion of terrorism, because terror activities can be done by anybody. So if there are those who did the terror activities and use Islam as a religion to uh, connect it to uh, terrorism, that was very wrong. And Peter, when you are here in Tanzania, you have seen some places where churches and, uh, and, and, and mosques sharing the walls. The same wall. Yeah, same wall. So that means these two societies here in Tanzania, they are living in harmony. We are living in harmony. And above all, we have these uh, interfaith committees which are trying to assist the government to see that people are living in harmony. Sometimes those interfaith committees perform the role of government oh, in, yes. in, in adjudicating problems. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you're right. When I think of, of Tanzania, yes. and everybody says to be safe, they're saying to me to be safe for another reason. Mm. We're in the midst of a pandemic, a global pandemic. Yes. Vaccination rates in America are a little bit above 55%. Vaccination rates here in Tanzania are very low. Yeah. What are you doing about that? Actually, vaccination 
We are just starting vaccinating people. We started last month and uh, we were late joining the, the, the COVAX facility. But then when we joined, we moved faster. After a month, a month after joining the COVAX, we started vaccination. And the numbers are rising now. But we haven't done much. We are maybe at 2%, but we haven't done much. But the process is rolling up. Your predecessor, uh, the former president, who died only what, about six months ago. Yes. He was someone who didn't jump on the vaccination bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, he was saying it's a disease that or a virus that could be prayed away. Mm-hmm. And sadly, he died from it. Mm-hmm. One of your first acts as president was to get vaccinated. Yeah. My president first had a heart problem. And, and uh, it could be that problem that, takes, that took him away. And uh, on COVID, he believed that there is COVID, but he had his own mechanism of do- dealing with it. And some were seeing it negatively, but some were seeing it positively because he, co- he didn't believe in locking down people. He didn't believe in closing the borders. And that helped much because Tanzania is bordering nine other countries, of which if we closed the borders, these nine other countries could have suffered, suffering from getting their foodstuffs from the Dar es Salaam port to their places. But then we couldn't lock down people because these people need to earn their daily bread. So if you lock them down, you had to provide for them. And we couldn't, couldn't do, do it. it. Yeah. We couldn't do it. So we let them out. What we did is educating them to take all the precautions that they sh- there could be no infestation of the disease. But he believed it, it was there and uh, he managed it in his own way. Yeah. When you were growing up, this goes back to your childhood. Uh, nobody said one day, Mama Samir, you're going to become president. No. It wasn't even in your mindset. No. You, had, you never dreamt of that. No. And yet one day, when you least expected it, the president passes away, mm-hmm. and within 24 hours, yeah. you're taking the oath of office. Yes. Yeah, you're right, Peter. I didn't expect one day I might be here. But this is because when we went on election in 2015, my party proposed me to help, to be the um, partner well, to the president. The vice president. Vice president. So I worked with my uh, previous president for five years and four months. And we did a very good job from 2015 to 2020. We did a very good job serving the people, construction of health centers, improving the quality of education. We gave free education to the people, water supply. We even had uh, flagship projects. Uh, We had the Nyerere Hydropower, uh, a bigger dam which is going to produce 2,115 megawatts for the country and the neighboring country. We were doing the, uh, uh, um, the railway the speedy railway, the SGR. So when he passed away, our constitution says when the president passes away or, or he or she is unable to perform the task, then um, the vice president will take the position. Of course, for the minute you did that, and even when you were vice president, there were those who said a woman is vice president mm-hmm. or a woman is president. Yes. How did you deal with that? Yeah, we always have those myths. It's part of the African traditions. But I think even in America, you do have such, such myths. So 
But they know now that women can do something. But you yeah. even had you had ministers in your own cabinet yeah. who were looking at you saying, a woman president? I don't think so. How did you turn them around? The only thing to make people believe is to deliver. You just deliver and they'll see that, ah, women can do it. And you educated them. And educate them, of course, yeah. But how did you do it? Did you do it with tough love or did you do it with, you no, know? No, no, no. You know, women, you just do it showing them you can do it. And you just talk to them nicely. And they understand that this woman means business. How do you yeah. talk to me to get me to do something? If I was a man, then I'll tell you, Peter, you go and do this. You hear me? Go and do that. But for me, I said, Peter, would you please do that? And I want you to do this, okay? And that's it. So they, they know that I want you, Peter, to do this. Yeah. Let me shift gears for a second because so much of your GDP is travel and tourism. It's a big part. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 93 countries in the world that are tourism-based economies. Mm-hmm. They're tourism-driven yes. economies. What happened during the pandemic and how do you build that back up? Yeah, we went down a little bit. Uh, we were growing. Uh, tourism was contributing to about 4 5% in our GDP. But then uh, during the pandemic, um, the percentage dropped, dropped to 2 So now we are trying to revive the sector on various aspects. And, uh, you know, you are learning from the previous mistakes. Of course, we did mistakes do, when we were receiving tourists before the pandemic, and we want to correct that. We want to go in a right way. You had the time during the pandemic to rethink everything. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So we are now trying to reframe how we are going to deal with it. But this is the only chance that we can um, we can uh, show to the world that Tanzania has a lot of touristic attractions and uh, invite the world to come to Tanzania to see what we have to offer. Yeah. Of course, when you and I started running around the country, mm. we didn't start in the Serengeti. We didn't start at the crater. We didn't yes. start at Kilimanjaro. Yes. We started in your hometown yes. of Zanzibar, Zanzibar. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people don't realize how much of a coastline you have, the beautiful beaches, mm-hmm. the islands, mm-hmm. Pemba Island, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They come here, most tourists come here to do what? To see the big five. Yes, to do both. They, do the big, they go and see the big five. They come for culture and arts. And they go to Zanzibar for relaxation. In yeah. that order. So let's talk. Did you see the sea in Zanzibar? Yes, I did. How many colors were there in the sea? A lot. When you come back, I, I want to tell everybody, when you come back from a trip to the Indian Ocean mm. and you show people your pictures, mm. they're going to think you used a special color filter exactly. on your lens and you say, no, it actually looks just naturally. like that. Naturally. That's yeah. naturally. Yeah. Yeah. All those different colors of blue and turquoise. Yes, they should come and see it. Yeah. Yes. But now let's move out to the Serengeti. Let's move out to Kilimanjaro. Let's move out to the crater. Yes. What are people expecting to see? Because in the post-pandemic world or in the near post-pandemic world, mm-hmm. Tanzania becomes very attractive because you have wide open spaces. You can breathe. Yes. Social distancing is baked into the equation. Yes. Right? You're not crowded. Mm-hmm. But what are they hoping to see? First, they're going to see the artistic work of God, the ecology of the, of the, of the, the ecosystem of the, of, the, of the areas, like in the crater. Um, the starting point of it was the volcano. The volcano created a crater. And I don't know what happened, although all those animals are there and uh, in the crater. So that's an art of the god. But then they are going to see what we have in, 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 um, 
in areas of wildlife. We have all those named big five. What are they? The, the, the lions, the leopards, the elephants, buffalo, and the rhino. And we have a number of wildlife, different, different species are there. And they are going to see the ecosystems, how these animals live, how these animals live, and um, how they depend on the animals, the bigger ones, the small ones, the water, the streams. So the, the ecosystems there is just marvelous, yes. And of course, then they get a chance to see Kilimanjaro. Yes, in, uh, in, 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 in Kilimanjaro, in Moshi. In Moshi, yeah, they are coming to see Kilimanjaro. You know, Peter, most of these people, Americans and Europeans, they believe Kilimanjaro is in Kenya. My thanks to President Hassan. As we acknowledge the 20th anniversary of a dark day in American history, 9-11, I spoke with Kevin McAleenan. I first interviewed him when he ran the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Service. Then, he was appointed acting head of the Department of Homeland Security. And as you might imagine, he has a lot to say about the current aviation security environment. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. You know, I go back to 9-11. We all know where we were that day. It's one of those pivotal moments in our lives. We all can't, we can't forget. You know, you've come up through the ranks, through customs, and then, and then, of course, DHS, from a different perspective than I have because you had different responsibilities, different approaches. And the argument was always made that, you know, whether it was the agency that you ran or the, or the agency that was run by others before you, that we were in this war of technology, in this war of creativity in a negative way, if you will, that we were always sort of like fighting the last war and not doing a great enough job in anticipating the next one. And of course, the good news is, as I know you know, in the last 20 years, the uh, the TSA and the DHS has done a great job in making sure that we haven't had a repeat of 9-11. We haven't had an attack or a terrorist incident on an airplane on U.S. soil. That's pretty remarkable considering how many flights are in the air every single day and how many people travel. Of course, it does raise the question, Kevin, that I want to get into with is, okay, now that we've had that remarkable achievement, how do we maintain it? And that's where you come in. Well, I do think it's a remarkable achievement, Peter, and it, it's the work of, of thousands of professionals, not only within uh, the U.S. government, but in partnership with the private sector, uh, in partnership with foreign governments and, and really uh, even working with the traveler uh, on how do, how do we jointly produce a secure process uh, that, that still uh, works uh, to cross a border or to, to board an aircraft. And I, I do think it was an outstanding achievement, but with the growth of travel uh, being a very consistent presence, but for the 2008 economic downturn and now, of course, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we know travel is going to grow again. Uh, humans want to move. They want to connect. H how do we keep pace with that while preserving the security uh, achievements that, that we've made, uh, both here in the U.S. and with partners abroad? In fact, it probably requires to rewrite the manual. Uh, you know, I go back before 2001, and the, the protocols for cockpit behavior 
were that if somebody wanted to hijack the plane, let him do it. He just wanted to go or she just wanted to go to a different destination. You didn't create an incident. You flew, you landed. That was it. That was the, that was the MO that those protocols were written for. 9-11 changed all that. Uh, you know, the good news now, and it's, it's, it's essentially essential news, is that the cockpit's sealed. Pilots don't come out for any reason. Uh, you know, if you can seal off the cockpit, you've basically taken that opportunity away in about 90% of the cases. Absolutely. That's a, that was a critical measure. And I think your point about rewriting the manual is really on point. And it's something we've had to do multiple times uh, in the post 9-11 era to keep up with uh, emerging threats, uh, emerging te- terrorist tactics and, and techniques. And I think really you're doing two fundamental tasks uh, from a border security perspective. You're trying to prevent people that might pose a risk from entering the country. And from an aviation security perspective, you're trying to prevent them from getting on a plane and bringing something that might aid them uh, in creating a security incident on that plane. But, but the specifics on how you approach that and the different threats uh, that have emerged uh, since 9-11 have made that rewriting of the manual process uh, really something that's continuous uh, between uh, the, the agencies responsible for this work, Transportation Security Agency, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, uh, and their international partners. And I, I think that's a real important part of the story is, is how they've applied technology and emerging technology uh, to get past this dichotomy where more security meant more hassle, uh, more waiting, more, more uh, intrusive uh, interactions with government. Uh, now you can achieve more security and better facilitation uh, with the use of technology. You know, we go back to the, the 9-11 hijacking, and then shortly thereafter, we had the shoe bomber. And nobody thought that was possible, but there it happened. And ever since that day, you and I and everybody else, we've got to take off our shoes. Then came the underwear bomber. We remember him. And, and uh, luckily that didn't detonate, although he did burn himself. Uh, but that was one that nobody saw coming either. And then in the cargo area, you had the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the copier machine parts that turned out to be explosives. And uh, so... There are loopholes that that the terrorists will try to find. The real challenge for your agencies, of course, uh, is how to get ahead of them. Absolutely. And there are some more techniques in between. Uh, Liquid explosives plot in 2006, uh, originating in the United Kingdom, and and more recent uh, knowledge, unfortunately, shared by terrorist organizations on types of devices that that might be able to get on uh, aircraft with with aviation security as it existed a few years ago. Uh, So that... That partnership, both, I think it really starts with the intelligence side. You know, one of the key lessons, as you know, Peter, from 9-11, what was the need to share information between agencies, to connect the dots, if you will. Uh, That whole system and process has dramatically changed and improved both in the U.S. government uh, and with international partners. Uh, So not, not only are individual threats identified and often addressed far away from ever boarding an aircraft, uh, but t- types of techniques uh, that organizations might use uh, are identified and able to be uh, developed, had countermeasures developed for them uh, as well. Uh, so that, that within government partnership and the government to government partnership has been uh, really a key part of the story. But it, it, we shouldn't ignore the partnership with the private sector. Uh, new technology, new models uh, of working with uh, security companies that can support uh, government processes and of course, the, the traveler, uh, the development of trusted traveler programs like Global Entry, uh, like TSA's PreCheck, 
uh, have allowed the government to, to really focus resources on a smaller percentage of those uh, traveling across borders onto aircraft that might present a risk uh, by that sharing of information in partnership with the traveler. You and I both remember the problem about agencies talking to each other back in the year of 2001, where the FBI field office, at least one of their agents, was very concerned that the people that she was watching were taking flying lessons. And what she thought was particularly crazy was they wanted to learn how to take off. They didn't want to learn how to land. She thought that was a problem, and she was right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, those that failure of imagination uh, that we had prior to 9-11 as, as, a, as a collective national security enterprise, uh, I, I think that's largely been overcome. Uh, people realize that uh, there are threats, uh, that they're diverse, uh, and that we need to really be aware of different vectors, different types of organizations that might present a threat, and different ways that they might try uh, to mount that threat. But I do think you know, the, the focus on aviation, uh, both from the terrorist adversary, but also from the security apparatus, uh, makes it an incredibly safe uh, way to travel and one of, one of the best facilitated ways to travel now with, with the emerging technologies making those boarding processes easier. As, as you noted, we all had to remove our shoes after the shoe bomber, but now if you're in TSA pre-check, you don't. Uh, there are technologies emerging that will make that process of, of going through with your carry-on luggage and divesting uh, from your pockets uh, even more and more uh, streamlined. So the, the, the pendulum, thanks to technology, is swinging back toward maintaining that security, uh, but making it less of a hassle to do so. Although while that pendulum swings, I think you would agree with me that you never want to let technology take the precedence over common sense and conversation. Absolutely. Uh, I used to say when I was a port director at CBP that, that our people are, are our best threat detector. Uh, their, their intuition, uh, their ability to, to have a dialogue uh, is always a critical part of the process. And, and really, technology is an, an enabler for security professionals. It doesn't replace them. You know, it's always so easy to get seduced by the technology, but if you forget the art of the conversation, you're already in a losing proposition. Absolutely, no question. You know, I, I keep saying that if I'm a homicide detective and I think you killed somebody, I'm not going to ask you if you killed them because you'll say no. I will engage you in a conversation, try to establish some common ground, and halfway through that conversation, I might ask, so, Kevin, what'd you do with the gun? And if you answer that question, now we're really going to have a conversation, right? That's, that's a great technique and a time-honored one. And really what you're highlighting is, is the need for a layered approach. Uh, you need the technology, you, you need the partnerships, you need the security processes that give you confidence uh, in the, the overall end-to-end -end approach. But you also need that, that human element, uh, that trained professional who can look at a situation, look at an individual and see that something's off. My thanks to Kevin. I can always depend on Gary Leff tell me something new, different, and occasionally absurd about the travel industry. He writes viewfromthewing.com, and in this conversation, he weighs in on what at least one airline is doing to make our experience worse. And then, what about all the unruly passengers who've been pulled off planes and fined? Gary followed the money and has some answers that might surprise you. Gary, there's just so much to talk about, but I want to start with the stuff that you cover that sometimes even I don't know about and everybody needs to know about it. And that's when the airlines don't exactly in a very public way change their policy in ways that may not always be beneficial to travelers. And you've got a doozy, don't you? 
Yeah, so American Airlines this month changed its the language in its contract of carriage. And that is the agreement that you agree to, whether you know it or not, when you buy an airline ticket. And they changed the language to basically say that they have very little responsibility to you in the event of a very long delay or cancellation, other than giving you back your money, unless they give you a hotel uh, during an overnight for a medical reason or something like that, uh, will they reimburse you for that hotel? You know, these are things that the airline has pretty much done in practice, but hasn't been uh, in their language uh, for quite, you know, for a while. And they've, they've updated their language to make it really, really clear that they don't want to take care of you when things go wrong. All right, let, let me back up a little bit and put some perspective into this. I always was led to believe that if I'm, you know, changing planes from, let's say I'm going from LA to New York and I'm changing planes in Chicago and they have a mechanical or they can't find a flight crew member and that's the last flight of the day and I'm, I'm stuck at the airport, they're going to take care of me. Um, and not because I'm a mega frequent flyer, but because I'm a passenger. And I've had that happen. I've seen it happen with other people. Um, weather, of course, creates another issue where the airlines tend to get off the hook. But in, this, in, in, the, in the situation I just you know, delineated for you, that would have been the case. Then comes plan B, which is I've seen many other airlines. There's a pecking order, depending on what status you have at the airline. If you're dressed in a bunch of Birkenstocks with a backpack and you're 19 years old and you, you get nothing, you get a chance to sleep in a chair at the airport. Um, and yet if you're a mega million miler, they'll take care of you. So I guess what we're seeing here is that the airline's saying, okay, for everybody else other than mega million milers, you're out of luck. Well, so they have an automated system now. They restrict the ability of the agents to just hand out hotel vouchers. And they have also say, look, we're not going to ever reimburse you for a hotel if you go out and get it yourself. You've got to get into the long line and you take whatever they give you. And if they don't have any inventory, there may be rooms available at hotels you could book yourself. If it's not available through their system, which is outsourced to a third-party agency, then you're out of luck. You have to go through that system or you don't get anything at all. And they've moved in that direction already. Their systems already restrict what agents can do, but they've quietly updated their terms and conditions to say that's the case. Now, to, to me, it seems what's really striking is you know, they – got rid of 30% of their you know, non-union employees during the pandemic, right? They've cleared out, you know, from communications, all the revenue management, 30%. They still have lawyers that are sitting there figuring out how to make sure their language obligates them to less to the customer. I hear you. I hear you. And speaking of outsourcing and getting rid of employees, you did another story recently, which I thought, wow, what bad timing is this? Not your story, by the way, but the decision that the airline did. And that is telling their agents, their counter agents, that when it's time to board a flight, they're only going to let one agent board a flight. Now, think about that. One agent has to be able to pull coupons, check in bags. I mean, it's, I think it's impossible. Well, you know, it, it somewhat depends on the technologies that they're working with. Uh, American Airlines, during the pandemic, uh, started saying if a flight was less than 70% full, they would have one agent board it. And I had a flight a week and a half ago that was only about 15% full, and it was no problem for that one agent. Uh, now they're saying at American, if it's less than 80% full, then only one agent works the gate. 
And that is a problem because if you've got people trying to change their seats, they're trying to upgrade, they're trying to get on standby, um, the agent has a whole lot of tasks to do besides just boarding the plane. And you want that agent looking out at passengers, especially now with all of the passenger incidents we've seen on planes. You want that agent watching the behavior of passengers and saying, hey, you know, maybe that person has had too much to drink in the airport, right? Maybe they're on something. We don't want them on the plane to create a problem, right? But instead, but the airline also has that agent watching all the size of your carry-on bag to see if it's too large, trying to get you to pull it out of line. And then they want that agent to be charging you if you have an oversized carry-on bag while they do everything else. And that just is not a recipe for uh, getting the flight off on time, which they're still expected to do, not a recipe for taking care of customers. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's a, a problem. Now, other airlines do manage to you know, use fewer people at the gate at times, um, but I don't think the technology or the processes, just the operation is down uh, at American right now to make that work well. And, you know, you mentioned that one person to also be the eyes and ears of the airline. It bothers me when you think about the fact that they don't have enough time to do any sort of behavioral profiling to see if somebody's tanked before they get on the plane or in other situations that predate the pandemic, of course, sex trafficking and child trafficking, uh, where they can automatically take a look and know pretty well if this kid really belongs with the adult they're traveling with. Um, so, you know, when the accountants take over the asylum, the asylum tends to go crazy. And that's what I think we're having here right now as the airlines are trying to cut costs. It's almost inevitable now. You've got another crazy story about somebody misbehaving on an airplane, uh, with or without alcohol, but certainly with without their common sense. Um, you had one the other day that, I mean, I had to read twice to believe it. You had somebody who was refusing to wear a mask and then ate it. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. You know, um, and, and they were, you know, making barking noises. Um, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of crazy. Look, first of all, we know already when you have so many people stuck inside of a metal tube for a long time, bringing all the issues that they have, the whole thing can be combustible anyway. You know, add in masks that have gotten really political and, and, and the government and airline rules, um, and you've just got, uh, it's a recipe for crazy. And we know, you know, look, in the first uh, seven months of the year, there were about 2,500 incidents that were reported to the TSA about masks alone, right? And that three quarters of you know, the issues that have risen to the FAA have been mask related. Uh, so this is all uh, a little bit uh, crazy. Uh, we've had people ripping off masks along with their clothes. Uh, we've had, but, but this is the first time I've seen anyone actually eat the mask. It's sort of like jumping in the shark, eating the mask. I got it. But all kidding aside, it's still creating a, a, a bad situation up in the air. Uh, alcohol being involved complicates things in a big way. It's now part of the in-flight announcement, at least at American Airlines. When the pilot comes on and asks everybody to fasten their seatbelts, he also reminds them that uh, they cannot bring alcohol on the plane of their own choosing and that is a that they call that a legal infraction, um, and of course you also have just the not wearing of the mask itself. 
Yeah, you know, I was, uh, you know, the first time I ever saw alcohol served to go in an airport, I was a little bit surprised and, and taken aback, right? Um, because where are you going to go with it? Onto the plane. Um, I once had a passenger sitting next to me who was served alcohol to go uh, in a coffee cup in her airport lounge. And, uh, you know, she wound up with a, you know, with an infraction letter. But, uh, you know, you do have plenty of people who, American and Southwest, American and Coach and Southwest period aren't serving alcohol. And Americans seem to have more of these incidents than some of the other airlines do. Um, but uh, alcohol, you know, can certainly exacerbate things. But what's really interesting is that at the end of the day, you know, some of these passengers are getting banned from an airline or banned from the airline for the duration of the mask mandate. But ultimately, with all of the federal rules, there's just not that much actually happening there. So, for instance, when those first 2,400 uh, mask incidents were reported to the TSA, you know, they had issued about 1,700 warnings, right, not a fine. You know, the first fine, uh, first uh, instance fine was only $250 being doubled to 500 but only two people had actually paid fines as of the end of July. So, you know, they had 38 cases that had been referred for penalties, but then there's an entire uh, a, a bureaucratic legal process. They have to build a case. Uh, there can be appeals before that 250 or then $500 actually gets imposed. So, you know, it's not like there are meaningful uh, cash penalties actually being imposed, regardless of what the headline numbers about millions of dollars um, are uh, reported. Uh, and the question is whether these even ever happen. What really is an issue is when people go you know, truly crazy, when these things become physical, people are removed from flights, then there's actual legitimate you know, legal jeopardy that some people make. My thanks to Gary, to Kevin McAleenan, and to Her Excellency, the President of Tanzania, Samia Saluhu Hassan. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel and for answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate or review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.